0: Startup exits are the most sought after events in Silicon Valley, but very few people get to experience them. Welcome to the Startup Exits podcast, where we chat with founders that started, ran, and sold a tech company to learn about how it all went down. This podcast is brought to you by Startup Soft. Hey everybody, this is your host, Andrew Vasilik, and you're listening to Startup Exits, where we chat with founders that started, ran, and sold a tech company to learn about how it all went down. And today I'm joined by Brett Lovelady, who is a founder of Astro Studios and Astro Gaming. Welcome to the show, Brett. Hello, Andrew. Thanks for having me. So I want to start off by saying that you are a true Silicon Valley OG. Uh, You came to the Bay Area in the late 1980s. Uh, You started two very successful companies. One of them you started uh, in around mid-1990s. It is a design studio called Astro Studios. Uh, Over the years, it has become one of the probably well-known design studios out there. Uh, You worked on some of the biggest companies in the world, such as Apple, Facebook, Nike, EA, Microsoft, received the most prestigious awards that a design studio can receive, such as Red Dot, uh, Business Week, Design of the Deck decade uh, and then you about 10 years later, you went on to start a brand of your own uh, in the gaming space called Astro Gaming. Uh, you released, manufactured, designed and released uh, headsets for professional gamers, uh, eventually became an official headset of the Major League Gaming. Uh, you, The company was number 13 on the Inc's 500 fastest growing list, uh, which was then acquired by Skullcandy and then a few year, years later by Logitech. Uh, obviously, this is not start off like this on day one. Uh, in 1994, when you started your first company, Astro Studios, why did the world need another design studio?
1: Uh, that's a great question. Um, I probably asked myself that a few times over the years uh, um, and when we started. Um, at the time, I'd been, you know, I'd been fortunate enough to work with uh, Lunar Design and Frog Design, where we could see you know, the power of design in technology being here in Silicon Valley. And um, for me, that was, um, that was awesome. You could see what was coming. You could see the technology was gonna run headlong into consumer markets. And those companies were um, you know, partially dedicated to that along with a, a variety of other areas. But I also wanted to tap into, um, I guess, a broader spectrum of consumer markets. Um, so we went into things like fashion and toys and sporting goods and action sports and furniture and just about anything at that time that didn't have wires, bits and batteries. Um, that was in 94 when we started. So I felt like Astro could come in and be what I would consider a bit more um, counterculture, street culture, design culture, and very much design-driven in, in what we were doing. Um, you know, and, and attract, if you will, technology companies over time that wanted to be more relevant to um, you know real everyday people. Um, and so that was one of the biggest motivators for setting up Astro. Um, the second part of that was I felt like design consulting. Um, wasn't always magnifying the potential um, of the design industry, um, thinking a bit more of a service as opposed to leading the discussion and defining you know, greater value in business or you know, um, IP or brand building. Um, and to do that, I needed my own place and my own uh, perspective. Um, so we put out the, the sign that said Astro Studios and, uh, in Palo Alto in those days and started, uh, started consulting.
0: So you had a very like anti-tech kind of approach, but the, the intention was to to get after tech, to get tech clients. Uh, and this n- nineteen ninety four, this was essentially pre-internet, you could call it. Uh, oh. Did you have an intention of focusing on these new internet companies that were coming out, or did you not think the internet was going was going to become a big deal?
1: Well, you know, I think when you're in it and you're living it real time, we were very aware. But we started in nineteen ninety four. You know, the dawn of the internet, right? The, it was kind of the first couple of years and you know we're watching things like you know Netscape bubble up, and you know we're talking to the guys from Yahoo when they were Stanford students about their identity system, or you know you're hearing about this Google program for search engine and like, wonder what they're searching for. And you know it's like all kinds of things that were very basic at that time. Um, it was very exciting. You could kind of feel the you know everything happening. Um but we came out of the world of tangible goods, right? So industrial design, brand development, packaging, retail, manufacturing. Um, you know, and so the internet uh, and the idea of like e-commerce and services was really nascent, and was only because we happened to work with a few really cool companies did we start to get uh, an early perspective. Um, one of the things that most people don't even know about Astro is we actually uh, designed Electronic Arts' first website, um, which was uh, you know as graphic designers working with their IT guys and their their CIO to basically put an EA, you know, brochure online and even putting something online was like, well, what does that mean? Like, well, probably like a brochure you put online, you know, it's like, it was that early on. Um, But being in, being in the front seat for those things, um, you know, it was swirling, man. It was just like, it was bubbling and growing and growing. And so that swept us along, you know, into the 2000s pretty, you know, pretty much daily.
0: Besides uh, designing the first Website for EA. Uh, you guys worked on some incredible products. You contributed to pretty much what the design of what Xbox 360 looks like now, uh, as well as a bunch of Alienware PCs and laptops, Nike watches. Uh, over the years, what would you say are some of your favorite products or problems that you worked on?
1: Well, you know, we're we probably we I know we've delivered over 500 products and about 100 brands to the marketplace. Um, so it's a little hard to pick only the favorites. Uh, but you did touch on the ones that I think. Impacted our business. Some, you know, the most in the early days, in the uh, in the early '90s, in the mid '90s, uh, we developed a relationship with Nike um, to become uh, essentially sort of like their scout team into new new categories. Now, the first one of those was the watches that you mentioned. But over about 18 years, we actually you know designed their first watches uh, partnering with Seiko. We did their first hockey helmet after they bought Bauer Hockey. Um, we did a lot of we did their first golf club when you know when they wanted to get into golf clubs um, with their internal teams and so we sat sort of at the crossroads of working with outside partners but introducing Nike into new spaces. Um, for example, the the Triax watches that we created, um, you know, we got a lot of accolades for like, you know design of the decade and you know all kinds of things that brought us a lot of attention. Um, but it was actually Nike's first electronic product. And so we were, you know, in a position to help explore those, all those different avenues with them. Um, And then that was bookended by the fuel band, right? So the Nike fuel band, you know, being the first fitness tracker. Um, So when I talk about projects, it's kind of hard to, it's almost more like like a Nike, like just a very substantial client for us that set the tone um, in parallel. You mentioned, and, you know, they were right up there as our gaming thread, if you will, like we did the first uh, immersion controller, immersion technology, rumble controllers uh, way back with the team at Kensington and Gravis, and that flowed into some other products. And the next thing you know, we're doing Alienware, you know, gaming hot rod PCs, you know, custom built PCs uh, for gamers. And then that led to the Xbox 360, and so we've had this gaming heritage, um, and you know, all of that helped us springboard into our own company of Astro Gaming. Um, so when I you know projects from back in the day, they were just very foundational. Um, a couple of years ago, you know we did we did a whole series of products to uh, for Shinola, the watch company, where we brought you know um, things like uh, clocks and power systems and um, you know uh, you know even audio products and turntables, things that become sort of heirloom quality. you know those were a lot of fun to work on because it was you know revitalizing a uh, defunct American brand you know, from the early days into some new categories with the the team there. Um, And then, there's you know, there's all the products that are, I consider sort of the ones that, you know, improve people's lives on a daily basis. And some of those are for fun and entertainment. Um, Other ones are actually like useful utility driven products. And, you know, we've done a lot in wearables and we've done a lot in, you know, even wellness uh, these days or, you know, um, the integration of technology into consumer goods, you know, um, is you know almost all of those projects uh, have been sort of pioneering, and so anytime we're just starting something from scratch, those are a lot of fun.
0: Another one of your well-known clients is Apple, uh, and you have known and had a chance to work with Johnny Ive uh, over the years. You guys have somewhat similar careers. You're now considered uh, both leading figures in the world of product design. Uh, what was it like to work with Johnny?
1: Well, let's, uh, you definitely hit the way back button on that one, and I appreciate it. Um, Johnny's a great guy. Um, when we first met. We were just a brand new studio, and um, if you know your Apple history, they had a little product called a Newton uh, that was on the verge of, you know, of kind of flaming out, um, but it was the first big PDA handheld, but they had a great operating system that they wanted to explore. So um, we were brought in by the leadership down in Apple Design at the time, um, a couple of really good folks, uh, Robert Bruner and Ray Riley, um, You know, a couple of icons in the industry around here, They brought us in and gave us the project. Um, And this was about the time Steve Jobs was coming back. And so, um, you know, Johnny had come over from, um, I think it was Tangerine, London, another small firm, and he was the program manager on the project. And so as all this transitioning was going on, you know, he inherited our project, which was to take this uh, Newton operating system and explore other uses for it that wouldn't be PDAs. So, you know, we were doing set-top boxes and hypermedia devices and smart backpacks. And, you know, we were exploring a lot of stuff in the early 90s to, to help them take advantage of this portable operating system. So very long answer to your question is now Johnny was there as, you know, a contemporary, you know, design manager, um, very thoughtful, excellent designer. Um, I'm, I'm not sure he even knew what his career was going to be at Apple at that time. And so it's been really fun to you know, uh, check in with him and track kind of his, you know, his, his growth in parallel. I've always felt like I was the one, you know, of those guys that was on the outside, you know, free flowing where he was like, you know, in the, in the ivory tower, you know, working really hard to change the world from, you know, one brand. And we were trying to influence, you know, hundreds. And, um, you know, in that regard, I think there's a bit of a, there's a bit of a design brotherhood in, in, you know, in the Silicon Valley headspace at that time that, you know, permeates the Bay area. Um, you know, and and Johnny's always been one of those guys and very accessible, you know, very, um, thoughtful in his, you know, in, in all the, you know, all the follow-up, uh, interactions we've had, but as of Apple and Astro, um, most of our work trailed off, um, when Steve went back and Johnny took over and, um, they reset sort of how they do things, which is, you know, all the way back to the mid nineties, so.
0: So all of these, like Apple and all of these companies that you've mentioned, these are huge brands. Uh, do you guys work with large corporations mostly, or is there any startups that you guys work with as well? Um,
1: we do both. Um, we're about, I, I call it an 80-20 air fuel mix. So about 80% are with you know, you know, established companies and big brands. Then 20% that's you know, very much entrepreneurial or working with startups. Um, some funded, some not funded, um, some pre-funding, if you will. Um, and so, yeah, full spectrum. Um, and what's kind of nice about that is a lot of our big companies want to act like startups and, you know, often are spinning off new innovation teams or, or new sub brands. And so they, you know, they act like the startups. And so we have experience there. And then obviously the startups hope to grow into, you know, some of the, uh, the larger brands, um, you know, with, the, with broader
0: portfolios. So I mean, on on a fundamental level, there's there's overlap between the needs of startups and um, like a, a startup needs a designer, a startup needs branding and UI UX, and so does a, a large company. But the way that these, the way that a startup and a and a large corporation uh, work are are can be very different. With your experience, how different is it to work with a startup versus a large company uh, as an agency?
1: Oh, Wow, well, yeah, it's uh, it, you know usually quite a bit different. Um, and, you know, on the um, the, on the classic projects, if you will, which is, you know, here's a definition in a brief um, is, uh, you know, uh, in a bigger company, as opposed to smaller companies where you have influence on a variety of the touch points, if you will. Um, one of the things that um, you you maybe know, or should know about Astro is because of our um, desire to be in consumer markets and, and even, you know, collaborate and launch our own brands. Eventually, when we started um, we've always had brand communications or brand identity work um, as part of uh, the company. So the three pillars for us have been brand, uh, industrial design, and experience design. And you know, in there is packaging and UI and UX and you know, consumer insights and all kinds of things. But but those three pillars kind of have lasted from you know the beginning. And a big part of that is if you have a great product concept, you still need to put it into context, which is to give it a name. Give it a brand, an identity, a system built around it, maybe even packaging or out-of-box experiences, and then obviously, as the uh, the internet, you know, took off, it's it's the digital experiences, the direct-to-consumer aspects of service building, and all kinds of stuff. So a little bit long answer again, um, but the idea is like we we you know are involved in all of those areas, and what happens now is like a startup will come to us, and it's sort of like yeah, sure, we can help design your product, or we can help design and even define your brand. Um, but if we knit all those together, you're really working with one agency that has a perspective on creating properties, like full-blown properties, brands, or even companies. The fact that we've done that for ourselves is an area of, of um, you know, uh, business that we approach, and maybe 30% of our projects are completely holistic in that way. Um, as time has gone on, the big companies, they're like, hey, we're launching a new subbrand. we're spending off this. You know, can you help take our brand DNA and create a whole new brand? Or no, this has nothing to do with our you know our other our other product lines. Can you help us create one for a new demographic or a new technology? So that ability to holistically approach for either big companies or startups um, is really what we've invo- evolved into. For you know about thirty percent of our projects, and the balance are in individual you know lanes of like ID or branding or packaging or experience.
0: What I've seen you mention in one interview and that I found very interesting is that uh, you you said that about twenty percent of your business since inception of Astro Studios has been equity based. So you guys did design work for equity. Uh, at least that's the way that I understood it. That, that's something that's that's quite interesting to me because it's something that with startups soft, something that we've tried doing as well. And we've seen how difficult it is to actually execute on this and you know actually get something out of it. Mm-hmm. And we're certainly not the not the first ones as well. I mean, I think Reed Hoffman recently got involved in a sweat uh sweat equity venture firm kind of setup. Uh, what has your experience been like uh, doing this kind of equity-based work?
1: Um, well, that's a big question with lots and lots of stories behind it. Um, I'll try to keep it a, kind of a macro sense. So um, again, early on, as I mentioned, I felt like the power of design um, it wasn't being necessarily utilized or even compensated in the right way. So when I set up Astro, I said that we're going to dedicate our time to um, to doing equity based programs, what that means by the way, is you know everything from two guys with a big idea and you know maybe they've got venture capital or not, and you know we could join in and, and work with them if they couldn't necessarily pay full fees, maybe we would take some equity or we would set up a royalty arrangement or do reduced or deferred fees. So what that illustration is to me is like is basically being flexible on ways to help people get started and get moving. Um, that also align with our business model that we, we, we could, you know, either benefit from or um, at least, you know, help them get up and running. Um, you know, the same thing with our own ideas, of our licensing those own, our own ideas or, you know, spinning them off and, you know, gaining our own venture capital and, and turning them into separate companies. So it was a bit of staying in that perpetual, you know, startup headspace, but then also having the utility, the mechanisms and the business background in order to like, craft the right ways to do that um, it is a different different model um, it's a different type of even design and development work um, you're quite often you know um, you know, dealing with entrepreneurs that maybe have done it or never done it um, whereas you go into a big company that's you know fairly siloed or maybe even you know even if they're exploring they still have a pretty good idea of like maybe what the market analytics or the you know the the definition of their product or the you know the target audience and you know, a lot of a lot more information on you know executing against the, their own big ideas. So those projects are definitely more crafted. You know, laid out um, following a process that's a bit more traditional. Um, but I will say that over the years, you know, they the, they've you know the big companies again wanting to act like startups. Um, that's paid off for us because we've been you know deep in with a, a variety of startup uh, processes as well.
0: I want to ask you a few questions uh, about design within the context of startups, and maybe even more specifically, uh, design as seen through the lenses of a startup founder. Uh, so nobody will argue against the fact that design is incredibly important. Uh, even places like Silicon Valley that have historically been very engineering heavy versus, let's say, LA, which may maybe a little bit more creative uh, uh, and and kind of design focused. Uh, but everybody realizes that design is crucial. Um, so for somebody that has ran a design agency, somebody that has also ran a startup, uh, what are your thoughts on startups outsourcing design? Like, is is it even a good idea for a startup to Outsource kind of their design to, to to a third party agency, or is this a function that's better kept in house?
1: Good question. Um, I, there's a there's a broader answer I think maybe is best. It really depends on the category and the type of work that you're involved in. Um, a lot of startups are you know are, are developing one product um, and needing to get that to market and see where it goes. and sort of like very stay very focused. Other folks are you know it's it's a line, it's a service, it's a continuing relationship. To, you know they in consumer or their their audience um, all of those need design and they need it at different levels and I think throughout the business um, if you really look at most successful consumer oriented companies and consumer facing companies which is the majority of the work that we do um, it, you know design doesn't go away it doesn't really stop um, and so we're big believers that you need design in the c-suite you need you know chief design officer or chief innovation officer you need somebody who's been you know, tasked with all the touch points and all the development oversight of strong brand building. Um, you know, whether you're making a physical product or a service or you know um, anything in between or 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 connected, and so big believers that you know design should be at that at that level and not just a service of marketing or operations or engineering, for example, um, and. A lot of that has to do with the strategic thinking that I think design should be focused on, not just the production development side of it, but planning what's next and helping visualize and inspire people in, in inside organizations. And design has been set up as a as a discipline in, in a macro sense to to be the be the catalyst for those things. Um so I'm a big believer that design, you know, uh needs to be there. As far as like startups outsourcing. You know, um, I think you have to pick and choose. Like, you know, if you're going to create, for example, a you know electronic product, then you probably need to make sure you've got an internal you know engineering team, whether it's hardware, software, or both, and or firmware, or whatnot, to maintain that product and learn from it and improve it as it goes along. Um, the same thing is with the design. If you're you know designing a product or an experience or a relationship, you know you've got to have somebody there to oversee that and create the tribal knowledge for your brand. It the consistency to to develop your digital your physical you know whatever the relationship might be um so when you outsource those things they're good to get up and running and started but at some point you really should have qualified people internally making those decisions um you know a lot of people think design you know lead companies for example um you design something and then what do you need to design for and there's it's not that anymore it's it's a lot of high-touch maintenance and consistency of vision that need to occur even if your ceos or your head of marketing uh, are brilliant and have those things you need someone to collaborate and or interpret those things and develop the consistency of uh, of, of design touch points again throughout the system
0: i mean that's been kind of my experience my opinion as well as that it's fine to outsource design or engineering or other functions initially because at the end of the day i mean the, the people that are starting startups it's usually two or three or maybe one, Man, one-man team that uh, is very unlikely that they're going to be experts in both design and engineering and all sorts of different functions. So it's it's fine to kind of farm that off to somebody else. But once you kind of get up and running, you gotta have the the leadership. You gotta have the ability to make these sort of decisions in house. Um, where would you say? I, I, I think there's 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 kind of a fine line between in in the context of design and startups. There's a fine line of being uh, sort of too perfectionist and uh, on the other side, kind of being practical and and scrappy uh, within the context of startups and founders where do you th- where do you draw this line
1: that's a good question um again might it might depend on the industry a bit um you know there was quite a um, a movement for you know based on rapid prototyping and mvp building um a few years ago and it still continues but um so the idea of like well let me just get my first one up and running and i'll worry about design later um and you know i'll worry about polishing it up i just need to get the first one made and produced and on kickstarter or whatever it might be to get people moving and there's, you know, that's that's a valid approach. Um, my concern is that you're designing it every at every turn anyway. So why not try to perfect it? Because you're also, you know, are brand building. And I don't mean just digital identities. I mean you're brand building by creating, you know, an expectation of the quality of the product and the relationship with your, you know, your in your in target audience and consumers or whoever it might be. So, you know, you can be pretty scrappy, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. But a little bit of design goes a long way and the right amount of design, I think adds a ton of value. um, Even if it's, you know, venture capital value um, uh, improvement or it's, um, you know, in the eyes of the consumer that just says, Oh, this is an expectation. I'll pay more because they're more premium or they're more polished. So it's always gonna be a little bit of a trade-off, but I would always lean toward you're going to design it anyways, get design involved very early in the process. If you're, you know, uh, as opposed to adding it later on when you kind of get to the next level or you raise your capital. Um, One way to think about design, and I often do, is that it's like, you know, in parallel to venture capital and think of it as creative capital. That creative capital can actually help you contextually before you even raise venture capital and give you better valuations if you've actually deployed it earlier on in the process. Not for every category, but for a lot of categories, design will actually and should enhance um the value perception if not reality of your program.
0: This might be a weird question. Um how much de- how much design is copied? Like how well, much of it is like true creative genius and how much of it is just reuse repurposed uh things that we know work that uh that we're just applying to a different use case.
1: That's an interesting question. I don't know that I would I could put a a percentage or a you know a number to it, but I think um as humans we're sort of uh, you know we're we're a collection of, uh, of experiences and influences. Um, and you know, we even, you know, start a lot of projects that way. Right. Which is like, okay, let's look at the landscape. Let's audit this. Let's see what the competition's doing. Let's, let's figure out, you know, you know, where the opportunity, the green field or something no one's done before. Um, it's hard to absorb all of those things into your, you know, your mental hard drive and not reflect those back in some of your work. Um, I mean, I think every artist and designer and engineer in history is, you know, building off of those same sort of influences or education they may have. Um, when it gets into copying and, you know, and obvious copying, that, that's, that's a rough area, right? I think designers, rightfully so, get pretty worked up and offended when, you know, when they, uh, you know, when that, that's the perception. Um, but I can tell you that you can put almost any artifact in front of someone. And just say, "What does this remind you of, or what do you think about this, or you know what is this what is this how does this speak to you?" And they will touch on something that has existed before, and they will say, "Well, it kind of reminds me of this or an amalgam of that and you know and you know and items or experiences I've had you know like it's going to come from that, and that's again that reservoir of collections of experiences and images that we've collected over time, and you know it's it's pretty easy to to tie anything uh in the tangible world to something that's come before and so when you find something that oh that just feels so unique i really haven't seen that before um your brain is still sort of searching for something to ground it in you know in reality or, or your your database um but if you can find something that has that feeling to it that's when you've truly pioneered and you know you can recognize you brought something new into the world
0: hmm as, as somebody that uh, both ran their own startup and uh, you you work with a bunch of different startups as clients, uh, what are some common branding mistakes that you see founders make?
1: Oh, that's an interesting question as well. Um, the, from a founder standpoint, um, is they don't if they <laughs> quite often will not involve professionals at the early stages because you know their cousin you know is really good at websites or they have a child or a friend or you know boyfriend or girlfriend that can can you know has drawn up logos in the past you know or you know um I ask all my employees and we you know we all came up with a name and you know and then we we voted and picked one right um that to me is first of all, it diminishes the process of of what it is to get to something good. And you're, you know, you're relying on serendipity and, you know, and, you know, and fate. Um, And so those are things that we see a lot because it's like, you know, you've got limited resources. Like, do I want to go pay a lot of money for a brand, you know, development or a naming program or, you know, um, you know, do I need to build out this system or can't I have my cousin Larry just do the website after, you know, we tell him what we want him to do. And, I see that happen a lot and to me that's sort of like not spending um, a little bit of time and effort to work out a relationship with a designer or design team that can elevate your professionalism from the get-go because you're the person that has to wake up every day you know years on end living with the results of maybe what you've started when you could have um, established something that gives you you know more value from the very very beginning Um, so delayed design is, you know, in, involvement is one of the bigger things I see as a problem for most startups. Not most startups, a lot of startups.
0: So lack of resources uh, probably was not an issue that you had uh, when you started, uh, at least a lack of design and creative resources when you when you started Astro Gaming about 10 years after starting uh, Astro Studios. And Astro Gaming uh, has turned out to be a very successful company. Uh, but I, I got to ask, I mean, like 10 years after starting Astro Studios, uh, the company is doing very well. Uh, why? Why start a new company? Like, why did you venture off and start Astro Gaming? And uh, why, what is it about gaming that kind of drew you to, to start something in this industry?
1: I would say the two biggest things, one, after you have consulted for a lot of other people and seen the, the success of um, the design work that you've done, there's always this desire to like, oh, you know what? I want to own and control and develop the whole company and brand, not just the products that exist in it. There's a, a lot of designers have that desire. Um, and I think, you know, part of it's, you know, sometimes it's financial, um, sometimes it's just like a burning, you know, desire to, you know, to run a brand fully and have complete control and, you know, and, and, um, and, you know, rally up in, uh, um, you know, other people to work with other disciplines, um, which is a lot of the clients that we work with. So they're sort of like, you know, we've walked the walk for a long time now, you know, or, or talk the talk and let's walk the walk, right. Let's, let's experience what they experience. Um, creating, you know, wealth, if you will, is one of those things, creating impact in the marketplace at scale, um, as opposed to, you know, just consulting from project to project. So after doing that for, you know, you know, 10, I oh, well, really had done it for almost 15 years if you include before Astro, um, you know, the desire was to, to basically create and launch our own brand. The interesting part was we'd just become very deeply embedded in the gaming communities. And we recognize like, wow, this is the future of a lot of, of potential. We sit at the crossroads of consumer, lifestyle, technology, culture. Um, gaming looks like a, an interesting place. And in that process of working for Alienware and Microsoft and you know, a variety of other companies, um, we recognized that the emerging esports community um, was underserved and underdeveloped, um, but was emerging quite rapidly. Um, and the idea of uh, some of the things that we'd done in our other um, other industries. Uh, we worked a lot in, for example, action sports and team sports. And the idea of that sports overlay uh, from those tangible sports going into video gaming and the esports market was something we had a lot of expertise at. And so, you know, it was a business proposition. You know, you got a $60, 70000000000 billion industry that at that time had really no professional grade accessories for the pros to use. So we dove into the pro market and realized quite quickly that. It wasn't necessarily the consoles which PlayStation and, and uh, Xbox take care of or, you know, the PC world. It was actually the accessories and creating a better experience. Um, I used to equate it to like, you know, you want the best shoes if you're going to play basketball or the best snowboard if you're going to you know, start snowboarding. So providing the pros with equipment that would benefit them and the audio headset space is where we, uh, we started. So that was after, you know, applying design, you know, intuition and research, and you know, working with the, you know, business, but also like really seeing that there was this open field opportunity um, that hadn't been served. Um, and then, you know, starting a company, we said, you know, maybe with a little bit of hubris, we said, well, why not, you know, Astro Gaming? We've already done Alienware and Xbox, and we have some notoriety in the industry. Let's just use our own brand name and launch a, launch a new business. Um, so. Long answered your question, but that was uh, that was the impetus for, for starting a company as well as you know how Astro Gaming got started.
0: So besides being very good looking uh, and being kind of like the, the Porsche version of of, of gaming headsets, uh, Astro Gaming's headsets were uh, direct to consumer. So you guys did not go through the traditional retail channels. And the benefits direct to consumer to the consumer is that you're able to provide uh, the much more for the same. Kind of price, or you're able to provide the same quality for for much less. Uh, what are some of the downsides of being direct to consumer that you guys have experienced versus if you went the the retail route?
1: Well, um, maybe indulge me a little. Um, when we created the headset, the marketplace at the time was essentially accessories that were almost like you know toy quality or the you know, entry level quality, and that that was headsets, controllers, mice, bite sticks, whatever. There wasn't what I would consider premium grade product. And so, you know, for us, we wanted to to bring a product that actually was better materials and better um, technologies, and you know, better features that were actually more relevant to pro gamers that were either meeting as groups and teams or you know, training at home online, for example. And so, from the beginning, we were it was all about you know, who's this for? How do we improve their lives and their functionality, and put that into the right package? And as we got putting it together, we realized like, wow. We're actually redefining this market, you know, which were you know fifty, maybe sixty dollars headphones, you know, adapted for video gamers or call center headsets for them. We were actually creating a new class of product, and if we put all of this into it, next thing you know, we have a three hundred dollars retail product because we put so much you know improvement and in technology into it. Um, you walk into a Best Buy and you say, hey, you know, we want to be the three hundred dollars you know gaming esports headset, and they're like, is. Does that exist? Is that a market we need to worry about? And and, you know, they they actually at the time they would call us the Beats of Gaming because they were just getting you know aligned with uh, you know the Beats by Dre headphones for three hundred dollars, and that was just pure audio. Um, And so we recognized early on, like we're going to have to do this direct to consumer and be relevant to the gaming community, which fortunately for us is massively connected, doesn't really always rely on retail, even even when we started Astro Gaming. Um, and so we just dropped it into the community and said, if you want our products, we can buy them from us directly and, or buy them at the MLG. We were selling products you know, at the actual events. Um, that happened and continued for almost five years. Um, in the middle of that, Best Buy came knocking and said, okay, you guys have proven that there is a market for $300 gaming headsets uh, with all of these features and all of these you know, kind of new functionality that we didn't even know gamers wanted. But you guys have proven that out. So way to go. Can uh, you want to come into Best Buy? So a couple of years later, we were still like, no, we're doing fine selling direct. Uh, but we knew to get to even bigger scale. We needed to go to retail. Um, and we didn't have a ton of retail experience. So we started looking around for partners to do that with. Um, talked to actually about 12 companies that you know, funneled to six, funneled to three, and even funneled down to uh, teaming up with Skullcandy, uh pre-IPO. Um, so that we could, you know, leverage their uh, retail expertise, which was massive and already global um, to um, launch the Astro brand into retail.
0: So going the the premium route, regardless if it's direct and consumer or kind of the traditional retail, uh, has worked out quite well for you guys. Uh, the headsets that you have created have become the official headsets of the major or major league gaming, uh, and that's that's a pretty big deal. I mean, that's like uh, being the creator of the soccer ball that is used during the FIFA World Cup, right? So that's that's pretty huge. Uh, and a couple of years later, the company was acquired by uh, by Skull Candy. Um, what was the reason behind selling? astro gaming i mean you guys were growing and you know you, you've, you you were essentially creating from what it sounds like you're creating a new uh premium grade accessories for a gaming market uh you were the official headset of mlg why sell to Sk- Candy?
1: so a couple things um and i touched on them a little bit but uh, as we were growing quite rapidly um we were also needing to raise capital we raised capital um in the you know dreaded 2009 and 2010 time frame which uh, as you recall the, uh, I guess we'll call it the downturn at that point, um, you know, it was expensive capital. Um, hardware, even in Silicon Valley, wasn't as in vogue, if you will, as software. Um, so, you know, we we'd basically leveraged the company to continue to grow quite a bit. And as we got into that process, it became pretty obvious that the scale and to create the, you know, the return for our investors and whatnot, we needed to, to go to retail. Um, that process that I mentioned, we ran by talking to a few folks to say, hey, you know, do you want to Help us get to retail, and you know, even invest in the company um, resulted in the fact that all these companies wanted to just buy us instead. Um, and we'd known the Skullcandy guys for a while; they were um, had just you know taken off like a rocket. Um, we're very much in sort of the the lifestyle lane of of um, you know consumer goods, if you will, um, and they were set to go public. And so we actually sold the company in 2011 to them. About four months before they went public uh, and you know in order again to go to retail and to experience that the growth um, that we could actually launch into Europe we could launch into um, to Asia and Australia and, and expand the brand pretty rapidly so that was sort of the, the premise if we you know decided that it was better to tie together um, it was better better for our investors um, at the time uh, with a little bit of pressure there to be really quite honest in the Again, that two thousand ten year time frame was uh, was unique in, in the business uh, business cycles. Um, and Skull Candy, you know, was very complementary. Interestingly enough, we were premium; they were sort of entry level, trying to be premium. Uh, we were into wireless technologies and gaming. They felt their brand and their demographic was very aligned, and it was so. There's a lot of good reasons to uh, to team up at that point.
0: A few years later, after the Skull Candy acquisition, Skull Candy is a is a public company. I uh, you guys, the, the uh, astro gaming was taken back private and this was 2016 and then a year later it was sold to logitech for 85 million uh what what happened like in these couple of years like what was the reason behind taking it private and then uh another sale to, to logitech
1: well um so i'll speak as a spectator more than an insider by any means um so i actually made the transition from 2011 um into skull candy and then it helped run the business as the you know i guess the interim ceo or president of astro gaming uh, because we we, they left us here in san francisco and my partner and i our our job was to then grow it at retail um i spent about two years building you know the retail presence with the team and getting ourselves into best buy and GameStop and a few other places um so when i left it was about a 40 million dollar give or take um uh revenue rate for astro um and i went back into uh astro uh studios full-time i'd never fully left, but, um, but, you know, Astro Gaming had taken, taken over the majority of my time. So, um, so I left, um, and we basically sort of cut off, um, you know, any of the, the development uh, cycles with Astro Gaming at that time, um, and for all the right reasons, it needed to stand on its own away from Astro Studios, and, and was doing quite well at that time as well. Um, however, to answer your question, the, the, you know, Skullcane had gone public. I lived through that. Um, they'd gone, you know, through some upheaval over the next couple of years while I was there, and we were growing the Astro Gaming business. But the Skullcandy side of the business was um, struggling. Um, leadership was struggling. The environment—they'd kind of overextended themselves in a variety of things. And then going public is actually has a lot of—I um, say a lot of maintenance—that I think a company like theirs really wasn't um, ready for. Um, you know, they were used to a very good, strong sales cycle and a lot of cultural um, aspects of what they were doing, not hitting quarterly numbers and keeping Wall Street, you know, happy. Um, you know, at one point, I think Candy was the biggest, shorted stock on Wall Street uh, after going public and, you know, some, some crazy stuff kind of going on on that level. Meanwhile, we were building Astro Gaming kind of, you know, in parallel and uh, working together with those guys. Um, but anyways, after a couple of years, uh, I'd left. And, and the, the company really just sort of was flat um, uh, for a few years as they sort of stabilized themselves. And then I think they were taken private by a, a private equity fund in 2017, as you noted, um, at which point they split the, the two brands up and sold Astro Gaming, which had been growing like crazy uh, in parallel to Candy, kind of settling into their size. Um, and uh, Logitech uh, bought them and owns them today. And, uh, you know, I don't know the final numbers. I could probably dig it out as they're a public company, but I think it's, you know, tripled in size or more um, since they bought it. Maybe not quite so, so much. Um, but Logitech, you know, uh, has an amazing infrastructure and technology and, and they saw the, the value of the brand, um, especially as it related to uh, professional esports. And I think you know, the other part of that for us was building up the cultural authenticity of the brand. Uh, for, for people that identify, you know, with gaming as their, their first, you know, enthusiast passion as well.
0: So the last question I have is uh, focused on edge tech, uh, cutting edge tech uh, and more specifically AR. So I think, and this, this is my personal opinion, that AR is probably going to be the next huge platform, uh, and I think it's going to be a platform that's that's probably going to be bigger than smartphones and the computers. Uh, but the unique thing about AR is that, and AR, by the way, I don't I don't mean AR on like a smartphone. I mean AR as in glasses. Uh, the unique thing is that, regardless of how kind of advanced the technology uh, some company is going to put into these glasses, people it's not going to adopt to the masses unless it looks good. So unless it kind of passes the, the fashion test. Uh, so what I want, in your case, I mean, not only are you a leading figure in product, uh, in the world of product design, uh you also were involved like uh, for many companies, as, as you mentioned for Nike, as, as sort of the scout team for new technologies, as well as, you know, you, you mentioned you have interest in uh, things that kind of overlap between the digital world and the non-digital world. And AR is a good example of that. Uh, what are your general opinions about AR? Uh as well as what do you think about AR as a kind of a how wh- what are what are sort of the design product design things or aspects that a uh, AR headset would need to have for it to be mass market?
1: Um so definitely have a lot of opinion about AR. Um we've been fortunate at Astro to work a lot in VR and AR and you know, kind of like all the other new realities, um a lot of you know, uh, a lot of mixed media, mixed reality type products. Um most notably in the AR, especially in this space that you're talking about here, we, uh, we designed the Bose Frames, which are AR sunglasses for Bose um, a couple of years ago with a really smart team here in the, here in the Bay Area, actually. Um, and uh, that product, uh, we love it. And the people that own it, for the most part, uh, do as well. It not only provides music, but there's an AR app um, that I think is just slowly getting into uh, being recognized for the potential it has as well. Um that product in particular, I think is a good example of the mix of passing the mirror test and the fashion test, um, as well as providing a, you know, kind of a, a unique experience that most of the people, you know, like, you know, have enjoyed. Um, but we've worked in, you know, a variety of things we have HMDs uh of all sorts, fully immersed uh, VR, as well as some other AR products. And um I'm right there with you. AR I think is going to be um, the most useful. Uh, the most ubiquitous of um, sort of this, you know, the augmented reality space or the augmented experiences, or you know, sort of the on-call um, technology enhancements, the predictive aspects of, of of technology helping you out without having to look at you know your your phone screen. Um, it's going to probably still take a little bit. Um, I you know I think it's going to be well out in front of VR, which is such a um, you know um, an embedded. Um, and sort of sequestered experience, if you will, that AR will be a nice overlay to like our everyday life. Um, you know, hopefully more and more as uh, you know as the as the future rolls. Um, but we're seeing it, um, you know, in uh, in other um, verticals. You know, so you know more more AR. For example, we did, we helped a company called Mira uh, Labs launch a you know uh, an entry level um, AR headset as well um, that, you know, allows you to like, you know, observe the world around you, but then overlay that with information. Um, they started out in the consumer space and then now they've moved into things like, you know, um, the energy sector and, and, you know, and, uh, um, you know, things like manufacturing and, you know, you know, entertainment experiences and all kinds of things. So, um, anyways, big fans of AR, I think it'll just continue to chip away at the, the acceptance uh, barriers, and you know, we'll all have you know some element of it probably in our you know near futures.
0: I think we're both on the same page that AR headset slash glasses is going to be huge, and I think we'll, what we can both agree to is that if Astro Studios gets involved in designing, it's going to be a, a damn good looking product. Uh, Brett, thanks a lot for being on the show. It was a pleasure to have you on.
1: Thank you. I uh, really really enjoyed it, and uh, thanks for uh, you know enduring all my long answers.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe and share it with your friends. Also tag a founder you'd like to see on the show. This podcast is brought to you by StartupSoft. To learn more, visit StartupSoft.org.